sing as a church, He Will Hold Me Fast. I'm always reminded when I heard a pastor say that when his church sings that, his mind bounces around to various members who have gone through very um, difficult times, and Christ held them fast. And it helps him worship because he thinks about the actual people in his church family who've gone through the hardships and came through them held fast by Christ. And I couldn't help, even just as we sang that this morning, thinking about God's faithfulness to some of us in this church and the way he's held us fast. So I hope, hope you think along those lines as, as you sing those songs. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Romans with me this morning? As you're turning to Romans, let me introduce this by saying, there are things in life that are very difficult to teach a person to do if you can't show them how to do it, if all you can do is tell them how to do it. And you could probably think of many of those things that would be difficult to teach someone else to do if you can't actually put hands on it and show them. Try to imagine what it would be like if you have a, say, a four-year-old daughter or granddaughter, and you get the assignment of teaching her how to tie her shoes. But you can't show her. You just have to tell her. And so she goes in her room and closes the door, and you just have to give her instructions through the closed door on how to tie her shoes for the first time. I suspect we would have a lot more kids running around barefoot, or we would wear those Velcro shoes till we enter middle school. Because you can't learn to tie your shoes unless you show it to them. I mean, your daughter or son watches you tie their tennis shoes over and over, and then maybe when it comes time, you, you put on your shoes right beside them, and they watch everything you do. You're setting the pattern for them, and, and they just imitate you do it. That's how they learn to tie their shoes. A lot of things in life are like that. Some of the most important things in life, we don't learn by just having somebody tell us. We learn how to do it by watching someone who's really good at it do it, and we just imitate them. We follow their pattern. You could read uh, somebody's doctoral dissertation on fatherhood, and it might not make you a great dad, but if you could just spend time with somebody who's the greatest dad you know, and you watch them, what they do and don't do and how they do it, you're more likely to become a great dad just being around somebody who is. For the church, doing the work of ministry is like that. I think we learn best by watching faithful ministry rather than just reading about it. Now, there's a place for reading about it, but we learn best by watching people who are doing it well and just following their pattern. In Romans chapter 15, that we're going to read the last half of in just a minute, Paul, in a sense, raises the curtain for us. He opens up his heart about ministry. He takes the Christians in Rome, a church he's never been to. He doesn't know most of the people in that church, but he takes them into his confidence in Romans 15. And as he raises the curtain on his view of ministry in the life of the church, he shares his ministry dreams, and he shares his ministry hopes. He shares his future plans. He even shares some of his ministry fears. 
and we get a glimpse into his, um, you could say, philosophy of ministry, his take on ministry in the church. In the closing part of Romans 15, he talks about the past, present, and future of ministry for him. He talks about the past 10 years and what he's been through and what's going on right now and what his plans are in the future. He talks about God's providence in his ministry. He talks about his own calling in ministry. And in light of the truth, church, now please hear me on this. This is why this, this part of this passage I think is so important for you. In light of the truth that all of us have been called to do the work of ministry. All of us have been called to do that. All of us are gifted differently in the body of Christ. All of us are different parts, ears and eyes and feet and hands. In light of the fact that Ephesians 4.11 says, God gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. God gave gifted leaders to the church to help prepare all the believers to do the work of ministry. Everybody has a contribution to make. So as Paul raises the curtain and lets us glimpse, in a sense, how he ties his shoes in ministry, or maybe how he ties his sandals back then in ministry, we get a glimpse of how he does that, and I think we would learn how to do that best by imitating his faithful ministry. So if God led Paul to open up his heart in Romans 15 and let us get a glimpse of how he views ministry, my prayer this morning is that Trinity would take a look at how Paul did that, and our prayer would be that in this new year, 2021, all of us would watch Paul do it and then imitate it in the life of Trinity Baptist Church. So if you found your way to Romans 15, we're going to start with verse 14. Now, let me just set the stage. Paul is on his third missionary journey when he writes this book. We think he's in Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. He's writing to a church in Rome he's never been to. And he talks to them about ministry and his future plans, and then he ends by asking them to pray for him. So Romans 15, starting with verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be ministers of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never heard have been told of him, they will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now... Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, 
I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessing. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Just a glimpse into Paul's heart as he's trying to map out the next few years of ministry. Now, for the sake of time this morning, I I would like to point out to you five priorities Paul had in ministry here that we would do well to imitate. Now, you could come up to me after the service and say, Doug, I think I saw this one and this one, and you'd be right. This is such a rich passage. There's way more. But if we were just to take a portrait and highlight five of them this morning, how does Paul tie his shoes in ministry? We'll watch it this morning and see if we can't make it part of our ministry as well. The first thing I'd want to highlight is the word family. We must see the importance of family in ministry. If you look at verse 14, when Paul first starts talking to them, he calls them my brothers. And then again in verse 30, when he asks them to pray, he calls them brothers again. Paul's never even been to this church. He's never made it to Rome. He writes in the letter, I'm hoping to get there someday. He's never been in this church, but he views them as my brothers. Usually in Paul's letters, he just calls them brothers. But in verse 14, he calls them my. He he owns these people. He claims them as his own. This is very personal to Paul. So as he discusses ministry, it's as if he's discussing it with family. Church, I, I, I believe that ministry fundamentally changes when we go from seeing each other as members of the same church and seeing each other as members of the same family. I have a, I have a close family member right now who has members of his own family struggling with COVID. I was praying for my brother's family this week. And I realized I have members in my church that were struggling with COVID. And I had to ask myself, do I pray for my actual family members and my church family members with the same passion? And I do if I view you literally as family, your family. So my brother's family gets no more concern from me than you do if I view you as family. Paul pays his family three compliments in verse 14. I want to show you these compliments because I want them to be true of us as a family. In verse 14, he says they're full of goodness, they're filled with knowledge, and they're able to instruct one another. That's a very healthy family. When he says they're full of goodness, 
in verse 14, it's, it's the idea that they're kind, they're generous. It, it has a moral component to it. They have moral character. This church in Rome, as Paul wrote this letter to them, if you've noticed in Rome, there's no strong rebuke in the whole letter. Other of Paul's letters, he has some very strong rebukes, like, I can't believe you're doing this as a church, I can't believe you're doing this. There's none of that to the Roman church. He believes they're, they're morally good folks. In Christ, Christ has made them good, and he says, you guys have abundant goodness in you. Second, he says, you're filled with knowledge, and I'll just remind you, spiritual knowledge does matter. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. This church took their faith seriously. They thought deeply about things. They wanted to know the truth. They studied. So they're full of goodness, and they're also full of knowledge. And the last compliment he pays them is that they're able to instruct one another. That's the idea of giving counsel or admonishing one another, passing along wisdom to each other. They're able to give good advice to each other. I've thought for years that God's people shouldn't have to go outside the church to get counsel. We should be able to do like the church in Romans. We should give each other. We should be able to admonish or advise or counsel one another. Why would we go to people who don't know Christ to get advice when we have each other? So Paul says, listen, here's what I think of you as my family. You're full of goodness and you're full of knowledge and you're able to admonish and instruct one another. Those are three great compliments for a church family. Let me just remind you, I think this is an interesting point to note. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1.5, he tells them they're also full of knowledge. And then he quits. The church at Corinth, you guys are full of knowledge. The church at Rome is full of knowledge, goodness, and the ability to admonish one another. Why can't he tell the church at Corinth they're full of more than just knowledge? Because they weren't. The church at Corinth wasn't filled with goodness. They had people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They had divisions and rivalries in the church. They had rampant sexual immorality in the church. So he can say, you know what, as a church, you're full of knowledge. And that's important, but it's not enough. Your church isn't full of goodness. But the church at Rome was. I long to see these three compliments true of my family, my church family. One other compliment he pays them as a church family in verse 15, after paying them the compliments in verse 14. In verse 15, he says, but on some points I've written to you very boldly in this letter, very boldly. One of the unique things about having a church that views each other as family and you love each other like you're literally my sister and you're literally my brother and I love you, it gives you the right to speak boldly into their lives. If I don't believe you love me like a brother and you get bold with me in what you tell me, I may not listen. But if I'm convinced you love me like your own brother and you need to come to me and boldly say, Doug, listen, based on this verse in Proverbs, I think you are out of line here. I I think you are out of line. I'll hear it better if it comes from a brother or sister than if it just comes from a church member. Part of how Paul laces up his sandals to do ministry is that he calls these people my brothers. And may God, in this new year, help us to become even more of that as a family, brothers and sisters. 
this boldness doesn't mean you're overbearing or arrogant or just absolutely grabbing people by the collar. But it does mean there's a safety in family where you can be bold. I think if you ask Paul, Paul, have you ever been to Rome? He'd say, no, but I got family there. I got family there, and I'll get there someday. So the first word's family. The second word on how Paul does ministry from this passage would be the word integrity. Let me show you where I get that. If you look at verse 15, after paying the compliments in 14, he says, I spoke boldly to you. Verse 16, I'm a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in this priestly service of the gospel so that I can offer up the Gentiles as an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I have this reason to be proud of my work. I'm proud of what I do in ministry, and I won't venture to speak about anything else except what Christ has done through me by word and deed. The end of verse 18, by word and deed. In verse 17, he's proud of his work. Nothing wrong with that, because it's not what he did, it's what Christ did through him. And he's proud of everything God has accomplished through him in his ministry, but he says, God has accomplished it through my words and my deeds. In ministry, God used Paul's speech and Paul's conduct. God could use both because they matched. His speech and his conduct said the same thing. We cannot be proud of our ministry when our conduct contradicts our speech. But God could use both in Paul's life. That's because part of ministry to him meant having to do it with integrity. I can't say one thing and do another. God needs to be able to use my speech and my conduct. That's what integrity in ministry is. That's what integrity in your life is. You're just living one life, and it all matches up. Your speech matches your conduct. Paul could write, to the Christians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you are witness, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct among you believers. Holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct among you believers. Well, let me ask you this. Why is it so important to have integrity in the way you do ministry in this church? However God's gifted you, however God's gifted me, why is it so important that we have integrity in the way we do ministry? I think part of it comes out of this passage. Did you catch as Paul describes his ministry, and this is one of the few places he does it in the New Testament, he describes it in, in priestly terms. He talks about, as in his priestly service, he's offering up these Gentiles as an offering to God. And these people have been made holy by the Holy Spirit. You, you realize he's talking about his ministry to Gentiles. In the Old Testament, Gentiles weren't even allowed to go into the temple to make an offering. They weren't even permitted to go in. In the New Testament, because of what Christ did on the cross, they are the offering. They are the acceptable offering. In the Old Testament, you can't even go in and present one, and in the New Testament, you're it. You are the offering made holy and acceptable. And here's Paul's view of ministry. The world has rebelled against its creator and sinned. God is redeeming and forgiving people out of this fallen world. I get to be a part of that, Paul says, and what I'm doing is presenting the gospel so that these used-to-be rebels that are now redeemed by Christ can be presented as an offering. They are the offering, and I get, as a priest, 
figuratively, to present them to God holy and acceptable. Paul viewed ministry as sacred. He's making offerings to God out of people who used to not even be able to present an offering to God. If what we're doing is sacred, how we do it matters. We're we're not pragmatic and we just do whatever works. What we're doing is so sacred that how we do it matters. And Paul says, I have to watch my speech and my deeds. I have to watch my words and my conduct. They have to line up. And when they do, Paul says, then I can be proud of my ministry. The work, the work is sacred. So we have to see the importance of family in the way we do ministry at our church, and we also have to see the importance of integrity. Number three is the word teamwork. You have to see the importance of teamwork if you want to do ministry the way Paul does it. Look at the end of verse 19. After he says this, he describes his first missionary journeys as this big arc that he did from Jerusalem all the way to Elycrium. And he says in verse 20, I've made it my ambition to preach the gospel to places that have never heard it. I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. Verse 22, this is the reason I've been hindered in coming to you, because I've been doing this. But now I no longer have any room in these regions, and I've longed for many years to come to you, and I hope in passing to go to Spain and for you guys to help me on my journey once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul believed his unique calling or giftedness in ministry was to preach the gospel in completely unreached regions. That's what many of our missionaries do today. That's how Paul believed he was supposed to do ministry. So when he had finished this area and felt like the gospel had been sown in this area, he was looking for unreached areas. He wanted to go to brand new places where there were no churches. He was a church planter, and he wanted to do it in frontier areas where no gospel penetration had happened. But Paul knew that wasn't everybody's calling. Church, your calling and contribution in this church may be very different than the person who's sitting three seats in front of you. You have to do your ministry and your calling and use your gifts. And Paul knew what his were. But he says in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. He knew Apollos wasn't gifted and called to do exactly what he was doing. Apollos did something different. Paul knew his personal calling, and everybody has different callings, different assignments, different gifts. But in his view of ministry, he knew he couldn't do it by himself. He didn't want to do it by himself. So he's writing to this church he's never been to, and he's like, hey, would you team up with me? He wants to stop in Rome on his way to Spain, verse 24, and he wants them to help him, and he wants to enjoy their company. His view of ministry was never to go alone. In verse 24, when he says, I was hoped that you guys would be able to help me, that's an interesting word that he uses there, it it sometimes can mean providing an escort. Like, I've got to travel. Would two or three of you go with me and provide an escort? Sometimes it means providing supplies. Sometimes it means financial assistance. Sometimes it means praying for somebody. Paul's like, I'll take whatever you can give me. If you'll help me get the gospel to Spain, please team up with me to do that. The church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 had teamed up with him 
to take the gospel to Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Galatia. Now he's looking for the church in Rome to team up with him to take the gospel to Spain. He hopes they can provide him rest when he gets there, fellowship, share his joy, enjoy their company, and then send him on his way. Church, do we view coming to church like that where Paul says, if I can just get to the church at Rome, I can enjoy them and they can encourage me and I would so enjoy being in their presence. Do you ever feel like when you're out in a lost world, if you could just get back to the harbor occasionally, the safe harbor, and be around brothers and sisters, that you could share their joy and be encouraged by them? Paul's like, I don't want to go to Spain without that. So would you team up with me and help me? Paul believed in teamwork. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians, he says, an eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you, and a hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Paul's saying to the church in Rome, I can't say I don't need you. I do need you. This passage in Romans 15 says the way Paul laces it up for ministry is, I see the importance of family and I see you like brothers and sisters. I see the importance of integrity and God has to be able to use my words and my conduct. They have to match. And I also see the importance of teamwork. In church in, in Rome, I'm inviting you to be a part of my team. Number four, maybe the most difficult of the four for us sometimes, is the word sacrifice. You have to see the importance of sacrifice in ministry. Look at verse 25. Now remember, Paul's in Corinth writing this to the church in Rome on his third missionary trip. He says in verse 25, At present, hey, I want to get to Spain, I want to go through Rome, but at present, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For the churches in Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contributions for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, and they were pleased to do it. Paul's writing the book of Romans from Corinth. And I, I caught myself saying this several times this last semester with the college students on Wednesday nights because I'm preaching through Acts with them. I just want to hand out maps because the geography matters, but I'm afraid you'd be bored with maps. But if you could see on the map what he's saying, he's in Corinth, and he wants to go west to Rome and further west to Spain. But he's saying, first, I have to go east to Jerusalem. If you just crunch the numbers, because that's what I do sometimes, he's going 800 miles in the wrong direction. He's going 800 miles east to Jerusalem. And then to go from Jerusalem all the way back to Rome will be about 1,500 miles if he takes the most direct route. And then to go from Rome on to Spain is another 700 miles. And church, he didn't travel like we do. You may have come here this morning with dual climate control and seat heaters. They were rickety ships and walking hundreds of miles. And when I first read this, I'm like, Paul, you think your next assignment is Spain through Rome, and you're taking off going absolutely the wrong direction for 800 miles. When literally on a ship, you're, you're, you're risking your life. Paul's already been shipwrecked numerous times. And as he goes that 800 miles back to Jerusalem to deliver the offering that these Gentile churches have collected for the Jewish church, 
he has people telling him at the churches as he goes, don't go to Jerusalem. He has a prophet tell him, they want to kill you in Jerusalem. Bad things wait for you in Jerusalem. And it's 800 miles in the wrong direction. And Paul's like, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Paul believed there are some things you can't delegate in ministry. And for him, this was one of them. There are some things so important for Paul, you can't delegate them. Other things he could. There were times he sent Timothy to a church or he sent Titus to a church because he couldn't go. Why doesn't he just send somebody with this probably a large sum of money to give to the Jerusalem church? Why doesn't he hand that off to one of his lieutenants and move on to Rome and Spain? Because for some reason, this one was one he couldn't delegate, even if it meant sacrifice. Some things are so important, you have to finish what you started. Paul started this collection. It took several years to get it collected, and he's going to finish what he started, even if it means suffering. And it did. Why was this so important that Paul delivered this himself? There was a chance that the church was going to to have this division, this Jewish-Gentile division. And the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were suspect of these Gentile Christians scattered out across the Roman Empire. Part of the tension may have been ethnic. I mean, we're Jews and they're Gentiles. Part of it may have been geographical. They're not from here. You ever heard that? I don't know if I trust you because you're not from here. Most of it was theological. Paul's out here preaching that the gospel is so amazing, you don't have to follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws to be saved. You don't have to go from being a Gentile to being a Jew and then become a Christian. You can go from being a lost Gentile to being a Christian in one step. Isn't that glorious? That's what the cross did. And there are Jewish Christians who are like, no, we think they need to take a baby step and become a Jew, and then they can become a Christian. And Paul's like, that's not the gospel. So there was some suspicion, like, we don't know if we can really trust these non-Jewish Christians. And Paul's taking this offering back to Jerusalem as a way to say, your Gentile brothers, they're genuine. They're the real deal. They're Christians, and they love you as their Jewish Christian brothers, and they know that there's some serious poverty in the church in Jerusalem. Not that these other churches were wealthy, but they had more than the church in Jerusalem had. And so Paul's taking this offering back as a way to say, your Gentile brothers love you. They love you, and they care about you. And Christ has so changed their heart that they're giving out of their resources to meet your needs. They love Christ. They love you. You've got to accept these Gentile Christians. And Paul believed that was such an important message that he was going to deliver it. If it's going to be ugly in Jerusalem, he's not sending anybody else to do it. Paul's going to face the music. Part of ministry is about sacrifice. Paul was willing to risk much to go back to Jerusalem. He was willing to sacrifice much to serve those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He's not going to hand this one off to somebody else. So church ministry is about seeing each other as family. 
Ministry is about having integrity and your words and your deeds matching up. Ministry is about teamwork and realizing that other people are gifted in certain areas and and we need to team up in our giftedness. But ministry is also about sacrifice. So let me just ask you, not that you have to answer this question to me, but you do need to answer it to the Lord. Is there anything in your ministry at this church that you're willing to sacrifice for? That somebody looking at you would be like, why on earth do you do that? That's 800 miles in the wrong direction. And you're like, I do it because I love these people and I love the Lord. And yes, it's a sacrifice. And yes, I love doing it. Paul's willing to go sacrifice, go the wrong direction, face what's going to be a a mob in Jerusalem. And he says, I still hope to get to Rome with joy. I still hope to come with joy to Rome. Yes, sacrifice. And it didn't steal his joy. Last one. The last big priority in my mind for Paul as I look at how he does ministry is the word prayer. You have to see the importance of prayer. He ends describing his plans for ministry and what's gone on and why he hasn't made it and what he's going to do before he gets to Rome by, in verse 30, begging them to pray for him. I appeal to you, I urge you, I'm imploring you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, would you struggle, or some translations say strive, together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul's like, I I don't want to do ministry unless you're going to pray for me. I'm begging you to pray for me. Paul opens the letter of Romans in chapter 1, verse 9, promising that he was praying for them. He ends the book by begging them to pray for him. He's not asking them to do something he's not already doing. I am praying for you, Romans 1, 9. Romans 15, it's your turn. Would you please pray for me? And he wants them to struggle in prayer. The word that's translated, would you strive with me in prayer, is the Greek word that gives us our English word, agonize. Would you agonize with me in prayer? Guys, serious prayer sometimes is a struggle. Sometimes it's a struggle just to keep my mind focused. I get to praying for somebody, then I get to daydreaming about things I've done with them. I'm like, what on earth is wrong with me? It's a struggle to block things out. It's a struggle to say, you know what, this matters. I need to be praying for her. I need to be praying for him. Paul's like, listen, would you struggle with me in prayer? I'm, I'm urging you. And he bases, look at what he says, based on the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit. I mean, he's, he's swinging for the fences here. Based on our common faith in Jesus Christ, pray for me. Based on the love that the Holy Spirit has created in us, pray for me. And he calls them brothers. Based on the fact that we're family, pray for me. Please pray for me. Well, what does he ask them to pray for? Look at, look at his request. There's actually three requests as he closes it out. Pray that, number one, I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Number two, pray that my service in Jerusalem would be acceptable to the saints. And number three, want that to happen so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. His requests are, ask God to rescue me from, and it's literally the word rebels, the unbelievers in Jerusalem, those that are still anti-Christ. 
pray that when I get there and I'm with the Christians, my ministry, my service, and I think he includes that, the gift he's bringing, the contribution, pray that that would be acceptable to them. And number three, pray that I get to Rome to see you guys. So based on the book of Acts, did God answer those prayers? I think that's a fair question to ask. Did God answer Paul's prayers and the prayers that he's asking the Romans to pray? Well, the first one, that he would be rescued from the unbelievers in Jerusalem, were those prayers answered, I think the answer would be yes and no. Yes and no. No in the sense that when we read in the book of Acts, I think it's Acts 21, when he gets to Jerusalem, there's a mob, he's arrested, falsely charged, and put in prison. Now, if Larry goes on another mission trip to Mexico and we pray that God would keep him safe from the unbelievers there, and he ends up arrested in Mexico and put in prison for two years in Mexico, which is how long Paul was in prison, we might say God didn't answer that prayer like we wanted it answered. So let's be honest and say Paul probably thought this one didn't get answered the way he wanted it answered. But it's also, yes, in the sense that when you read through Acts, he was rescued from the mob who wanted to kill him, He was rescued from a Roman flogging before they whipped him, and he was rescued from an assassination attempt on his life. There were some men who actually swore they would never eat again until they killed Paul. So he was rescued from death, but not rescued from prison. The second request, that his service and the gift he took would be acceptable to the Christians in Jerusalem... We think that one was answered. Luke doesn't say much in Acts about it, but apparently the, the, the elders and pastors at the church there in Jerusalem welcomed him. James welcomed him. He had good relationships with the church and apparently dropped off the gift. On the third request, that he would be able to make it to Rome, was that one answered? I think you'd have to say, yes, but. Yes, but. He did reach Rome, but not as he expected it was three years later that he found, from the time he wrote Romans, it was three years till he got there. And he came as a prisoner in chains after an almost fatal shipwreck. So he's like, I did get here later than I thought and not like I thought, but I am here. It's a reminder to me that we're not promised that our prayers will be answered just like we ask them every time. There are unanswered prayers, at least they're unanswered in the way the people asking them wanted them answered. They seem unanswered in the Bible. We are not promised that all of our prayers will be answered exactly like we want them. Maybe it's because God's more interested in us than he is our prayers. He is very interested in our prayers, but he's even more interested in you and who he's making you who he's making me. And God may very well have said, I do have plans for you in Rome, but I have plans for you in Jerusalem, and I have plans for you in Caesarea, where he spent two years in jail, and I have plans for you on a ship, and then I have plans for you in Rome. But I I read through as Paul opens up his heart to the Christians in Rome, and I I just, you kind of see the DNA of his view of ministry. And church, I because I do think we learn some things by watching faithful people do them, 
I want us to look at how Paul did ministry. He's a very faithful man who views the church as his family and believes integrity is really important and is willing to sacrifice for things that are so important to him. And he views ministry as teamwork. He doesn't do it by himself. And he also believes that prayer matters, and he begs other people. He's humble enough to say, I need you praying for me. And then he has this massive delay, two years in jail, not doing what he wants to do, not doing what he believed God called him to do. Had to be a struggle. For a man who only wanted to be planting churches in unreached areas, he's stuck in jail. It, it reminds me, and I'll end with this. I read this last year. One of my favorite theologians gave this analogy. It was helpful to me. Let's just hear it. When, when life seems confusing like that, like, God, I, I can't figure this out. I can't figure out your timing. I can't figure out what's next. He just said, it's, it's better to view that as you sitting at a table trying to make all the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle fit together but you're not promised by God that you have all the pieces. God never makes that promise. You're never promised that at your seat at the table you have all the pieces of the puzzle. You are promised by the maker of the puzzle that all the pieces you've been given come from the same puzzle. They came out of the same box. Just because my seat at the table doesn't have all the pieces for me to see right now doesn't mean that some of them don't fit, that some of them don't belong. I just don't have all of them yet. But from his seat, the maker, capital M, the maker of the puzzle, from his seat at the table, he has all the pieces. And they all belong to the same puzzle, and one day he will make them all fit perfectly. And we, by faith, have to say, I, I have no idea where this piece fits, but you promise me it fits in your plan for my life. So I'm not discarding this piece. And I'm not trying to force pieces to fit where they don't go. There, there must be another piece that fits here, and God, I'm going to trust you. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that he's revealed to us belong to us and our children. All the pieces are important. I just don't have all of them yet. And I think as Paul prayed and struggled and worked, he acknowledged that. And he's like, yeah, I want to get to Rome. That's why he says, if it's the Lord's will, I want to get to Rome. How, 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 do, how do you view ministry? How do you view ministry in a church? Is it, is it just what the pastors do? Is it just what missionaries do? Or in the life of the church, do you view ministry the way Paul does? It's for everybody. And part of it's about family, and part of it's about integrity, and part of it's about teamwork, and part of it's about sacrifice, and part of it's about prayer. And as we lace up our shoes the way Paul did his, we'll begin to do ministry the way he did. And I pray that in 2021, that's what Trinity looks like. I pray we look like Romans 15. I'll end by just saying, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're not part of the team. You could be. You could experience this, the way Paul describes it, taking lost people and making them an acceptable offering to God where God accepts you based on what Christ did on the cross. He's still doing that. He's still turning people who are unacceptable into sanctified, holy, forgiven, redeemed people who are acceptable. He's still doing that 
and he would do that today for you. Thank you.